0: Beloved saints, the the grass withers, the flower fades. But God's word, it is eternal and abiding, and it is perfect every morning. And so let us give our attention to the reading of it. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The most high who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up And so ends the reading of God's word. Uh, Let us ask our God to bless our time in his word uh, this morning. Uh, Lord Jesus, you know the darkness of our minds and our hearts. You know our fears and our doubts. And so we ask that you would flood this darkness with the light of your grace and peace, that you would open our minds to your truth. Grant us hope, grant us faith, increase our understanding and allow us to receive you through your word. Let your love shine through the pages of your scriptures. May your spirit be with us as we read and as we hear. And may we be granted the privilege to delight in all we encounter in your word. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. My children will often come to their parents with all sorts of fears. It could be, you know, monsters in the closet. Or it could be how the other kids at school are treating them and bullying them and calling them names. And different circumstances require different responses. For the monsters in the closet, the response, the answer is always easy. There are no monsters in your closet, Don't fear what isn't real. But the bullies at school, that's a real problem. It's a different reality and requires a different kind of of approach. Parents say to their kids things like, you need to learn to not let what other people say bother you. What doesn't kill you can only make you stronger. And if those don't work, you can bring out the big guns. I'm rubber, you're glue, and, you know, whatever you say. (laughs) Bounces off me and sticks to you. But if we're honest, fears never go away. I would not be overstating things to say we are living right now in an age of fear. Teen anxiety is at its highest in history. Adults, let's face it, we're no different. Fears are rampant right now. We, we, Pastor Brian mentioned, too, just a few minutes ago in the reading of the law, the fears about COVID. Uh, the fears are, are so numerous and, and various. Uh, the fears that we're not doing enough. Fears that we're doing too much. Fears that everything will uh, not be back to normal soon enough. Fears that everything will be back to normal too soon. You name it, we're afraid of it. Somebody is. And then there's fears about the civil unrest, that the riots are going to come down our streets, that voices of certain people won't be heard, that certain abuses won't be addressed. We have fears about all of these things. And those fears are being fed incessantly. Thanks to the advent of 24-hour news stations, we have fears being stirred up day and night, seven days a week. Add social media to that and the, and the constant access to the internet in your pocket and you can have your fears stirred up anytime you want. And if you don't like the fears that are being stirred up, just turn the channel and they are stir up different fears. And yet, The most often repeated command in the Bible is do not fear. That's easier said than done, isn't it? Which is exactly why God repeats it so many times. You see, God has this habit of repeating things that are important to Him and that we struggle with. Things that are easy you don't need to repeat. Kids, ice cream's on, Don't need to repeat it, they'll be there. Do the dishes, clean your room, you're going to have to repeat it a few times. The things that we struggle with, we need to hear over and over and over again. And so the question is, how do we learn not to be afraid? How do we learn not to fear? And and Psalm 91 is is helpful in answering that. Now, I know it's a beloved psalm to many. You've been making me nervous for the last month. Psalm 91's coming. I've been hearing from a number of people. And it's probably beloved because it deals with a very real struggle, the struggle of fear. Ultimately, fear is a reflection of what we love. We fear losing the things we love. The things we fear the most (laughs) reflect what we love the most. Many of our fears are really the result of misplaced or misproportioned love and affection. And so my hope as we look at Psalm 91 this morning is, is really to drive home one point and it's this. If you love God above all else, you need not fear anything this world can throw at you. If you love God above everything else, you really don't need to be afraid of anything this world will throw at you. And so that's what we want to see. And so as we look at the psalm, we first want to see the invitation to seek refuge from life's terrors in God's house. After that, we want to stop and ask the simple question, okay, who's in charge? And see what the scriptures say. And then finally, we want to see how this can bring comfort whether we live or whether we die. Whether we're free, whether we're imprisoned whatever this world brings at us. And so uh, that's where we want ahead. Uh, the language we find at the beginning about taking shelter and abiding under the shadow uh, of the Lord is common in Scripture uh, for the protection afforded a house guest. You, you might remember this simply going back to Genesis uh, when the angels come to Sodom and, they, and, and Lot invites them into his house. Do you remember what he says? He says, Do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Language like this shows up over and over again uh, for, for guests who, who uh, a homeowner or something like that has, has taken under his protection. This psalm, Psalm 91, is about those who seek shelter in God's house. And that doesn't surprise us in light of what we saw last week in Psalm 90. The Lord is our dwelling place in every generation. And yet, God himself isn't just our dwelling place. He actually did have a house, a building in which he dwelt, originally the tabernacle uh, constructed during the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And then uh, eventually, under Solomon, a more impermanent house was built. And, and the tabernacle and later the temple, these weren't for God's benefit. Like, where will he go when it's raining? Or what if he gets cold? That wasn't, they weren't built for God's benefit. At, at the dedication of the temple, Solomon acknowledged the foolishness of thinking God needed a house. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose of having a house for God was to provide a focal point for his people, a place where they could come and worship, where they could come and meet with their God, where they could come and learn about him. Even the architecture of, those, uh, of the tabernacle and later of the temple, down to the smallest detail, was meant to teach God's people about their God. And so, here in the midst of danger and all of life's troubles, whether they, they be natural or, or man made, God's call to his people is to come to his house and seek refuge. That house was always standing, a reminder of its permanency and the, and the uh, constant availability of God's protection. Day or night, it invited uh, the weary pilgrim to, to retreat into God's presence. And as those weary pilgrims retreated and came to his house and entered in, they would be dazzled by its splendor. His house was big. It was beautiful. And it revealed God's holiness and his compassion. It inspired both fear and comfort. And its walls were covered with pictures of fiery cherubim, the angels with swords, warriors of the angelic army, saying, if any enemy wants to get to you, they're going to have to come through God's angelic army to get there. This is what it's like to be in his house. This is the imagery And the goal of the house is not to bring attention to it. The focus uh, of the worshiper was not to be on the house of God, but on the God of the house. And that God had a name. In fact, he had had many names. Our psalm mentions two. He is called the Most High. (laughs) There's, There's none higher, none greater, none like him. He is greater than any man. He is greater than all the gods, greater than the angels. Those who seek refuge in him are seeking refuge in the one who has absolute authority over creation. But he's also called the Almighty. There's none stronger, none that can overpower him. No one can get the upper hand. So he is all-powerful And he can subdue any and every enemy. The one who seeks refuge in him has come to the right place. And then starting in verse 3, the psalmist begins to drive the imagery of the protection he brings to his people home. Those who seek refuge in God are are covered, verse 4, in his protective wing. He gets between them and their danger. He will deliver them from the snares and the traps of men, verse 3. He will protect them from deadly epidemics, pandemics. He will protect them from invading armies, verse 5. Wild beasts won't be able to hurt them, verse 13. Day or night, light or dark, these are the protections that belong to those who seek his protection, his shelter. If needed, he will send, verses 11 and 12, his angels depicted in those, those tapestries, those curtains, to protect his people even from stumbling lest they stub their toe. And the point of all of this, according to verse 5, is that you don't need to be afraid. God knows you by name. He knows where you are every second of the day. He's watching over you. Thousands may fall at your side, but he will not let danger come near you. And when all the dust settles, verse 8 says, you will remain standing and you will see absolute justice meted out on all his and your enemies. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you. Sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds really good. We hear this and we want to believe it but we're not sure what to do with it. Because as we look at our own lives and the lives of every Christian we know, this doesn't sound like our reality. And so what are we to do with this psalm? Do we reject it as being false, cut it out? If it is true, does that prove, does that assure us that those who experience suffering... Illness, death, must not really love the Lord. Now, to be sure, there are many who would say exactly that. There are plenty today who would have you believe that if you are experiencing pain, if you're not experiencing your best life now, if you're sick, if finances are a struggle, If you or someone you love dies young, the list goes on, but the point is always the same. If you suffer at all, it's because of some lack of faith, some failure on your part to love God fully. And at the heart of this teaching is the idea that you are the master. You are in charge. And if you could just get your ducks in a row, if you could just muster enough faith, enough love, if, if, if you could just tick the right box, then God must, is bound, is constrained to, to bless you with comfort, good health, and riches beyond your imagination. But doesn't that sound familiar? Isn't that the very lie that brought sin into the world in the first place? Isn't that what Adam and Eve believed when they took the forbidden fruit and attempted to control God and force Him to bless them? How could the answer to the problem simply be more of the problem? How could the solution to sin and death be the very thing that brought sin and death in the first place? How could trying to control God be the solution for the problem of trying to control Him? But this interpretation of Psalm 91 is not new with the rise of the prosperity gospel movement and televangelism. This is exactly the interpretation that the devil promoted during Jesus' 40 years, of, uh, 40, years forty days of, of temptation and testing in the wilderness. You might remember in Matthew 4, where we read, The devil took him, that is Jesus, to the holy city, and, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself off, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's quoting Psalm 91. He's saying, You don't need to be careful. You don't need to worry. You have a blank check. And God has to protect you, even if you throw yourself from the temple. Do you remember Jesus' response? He quotes Deuteronomy. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now Jesus isn't saying, well, the the Psalms say one thing and Deuteronomy says another. And and you can believe the Psalms, I'm going to believe Moses. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, your interpretation of Psalm 91 is fundamentally at odds with who God has revealed himself to be. The comfort of Psalm 91 is in surrendering to God, not trying to get him to surrender to you. Trying to control God is never the road to peace and salvation. It's against the devil's interpretation of Psalm 91 that Paul references it in his uh, last epistle, his second uh, epistle to Timothy. Paul recalled a situation where he had been grossly mistreated. And he said that when he sought to right the wrong, everyone abandoned him and he was left standing alone. but he says he's confident that he will see the recompense of the wicked, which Psalm 91 says we'll see. Though he hasn't seen it yet, he knows he will. More importantly, he says this, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. You can't help but hear the echoes of of Psalm 91 here. Paul sees this mistreatment as being fed to the lions and he sees himself as having been delivered. But then he says the Lord will rescue him in the future when he brings him into his heavenly kingdom. Paul sees God's deliverance as having begun, but not being full in this life, in this world. It will be completed in the next. He doesn't see the fact that he's mistreated and abandoned as proof that Psalm 91 has failed. In fact, Psalm 91 only makes sense in the face of adversity and pain. Psalm 91 doesn't promise a world without pain, sickness, or death. It offers hope in the midst of it. And that hope is ultimately realized when the Lord comes in judgment to repay the wicked. And on that day, the Bible is clear. None will be able to stand at His coming. But those who have sought refuge in Him, in the Most High, the Almighty, they will stand they will be made able to stand at his coming when all others fall. Paul doesn't see adversity as destructive to the promises of Psalm 91, but where those promises take root and flourish and bring comfort. He sees the trials as making him stronger, not weaker. He knows that ultimately, all of this will reach fulfillment when he dies and enters in to his heavenly kingdom, his heavenly th- home with his father. You see, our our earthly parents tell us, what doesn't kill you will only make you stronger. But because our heavenly father can see past this life into eternity, our heavenly father says, don't fear what kills you, it can only make you stronger. In other words, Some things are more important than this life. And hard times are where you learn to see what matters most. I said at the beginning that our fears reveal what we love. What we love the most is what we fear losing the most. And as I look around today, it seems that what most people fear losing the most is their lives. I'm not saying that our lives aren't important. I'm not saying they aren't to be cherished and protected. They are gifts from God, and they should be. But what I am saying is that in other generations, there has always been something or or, or some things that people believed were more important, things that they were willing to give their lives for. Family. Country. Country. Community, and most importantly, God. History is replete with martyrs who have given their lives for the testimony of the gospel. If you love your life more than anything else, you will fear losing it more than anything else, and that fear will control you and it will paralyze you. If you love your comfort, more than anything else, you will fear losing it. And that fear will control you and paralyze you. If you love God more than anything else, all other fears will pale in comparison to life without Him. Jesus said it this way who whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it and what he meant was if death is your greatest fear then you're not ready to face it if you're not afraid of death it will not have the last word and this isn't just something that that he said from a safe distance Oh, it's not that bad. Don't worry about it. He knew exactly what it meant to put this into practice. Because on the, on the last night he was with his disciples, after he had shared that meal with them, uh, they went out to a garden to pray. He sweated drops of blood because he knew just what lie ahead. He, he, he knew the severity and the seriousness of it. And one of his own betrayed him. And there he stood alone before Roman soldiers. And he referred to Psalm 91. Do you remember what he said? Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send down 12 legions of angels? But he knew that doing so would run counter to the plans that his father had for him. He knew that protecting his earthly life would would forfeit the salvation of his people. If he didn't go to the cross and die and be buried, and rise again, he would not be able to deliver his people from sin and death. If he didn't face death, death would win, and it would have the final word. And so he let go of his earthly life in order to take hold of something far greater. You. He loved you more than his own life. So he didn't fear death. It doesn't mean it wasn't hard and painful. It was. But he was willing to face it because of his love for you. So the question is, what do you love the most? you're being you are being bombarded every day with things that people want you to fear there's no shortage day and night 24 hours a day 7 days a week fears are being peddled to your phone to your TV to your radio And the underlying message is the same in all of them. Seek your comfort, seek your safety, and hope in the things of this world. Because there's nothing more important than your comfort, your health, and your view of how this world should work. And anything that causes that to be threatened should be considered the enemy, should drive you to fear and terror. But the Lord has a different message. The Lord says, because you love me, I will deliver you in my time. The Lord says, because you love me, I will protect you from ultimate dangers. Because you love me, I will satisfy you with eternal life. Because you love me, I will show you my salvation. Because you love me, you do not need to be afraid. If you love God more than anything else, you never need to be afraid because nothing, nothing can steal Him away from you. He is the Most High. He is the Almighty. And so not death, not life, not angels, not powers, not things present, not things to come, nor anything else in all of creation can separate you from His love. With God, what kills you can only make you stronger. And that's not a call to live recklessly. That would be like leaping off the pinnacle of the temple just to test the Lord. I'm not suggesting that you don't vote your conscience. I'm not trying to say you don't know, take precautions to guard your health. What I am saying is that those concerns can quickly and easily become idols in your life. And when that happens, they will consume you. They will destroy you. They will steal your comfort. They will steal your joy. They will tear apart the church. They will isolate you. And you will be consumed by fear. They will divide God's people because their loyalty to temporary concerns will be greater than our loyalty to the eternal God. as Christians, as those who love God above all else. Beloved, we need not fear death. Every week, as we gather together, we hold the death of Jesus before our eyes in the Lord's Supper. We remember that, that he could have called down thousands of angels to protect him, but he refused because the th- some things are more important than life itself things like you. He let go of his life for you. And as you take the bread, as you drink the wine, you are confessing that what defined him defines you. You are saying that that you love him more than your own life. That you freely give all to the one who freely gave all for you. That your life is his to do with as he pleases. You confess that you are not afraid to do so because you love him and you trust him. And that you know that he is good and that he will rescue from every evil deed and he will bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. Even so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, we draw near to this meal. We draw near to your word and we are reminded that you are good and you are gracious and you love us. But Heavenly Father, you know our hearts, you know our fears, you know what we want to believe and you know what we want, how we want to put words into your mouth and try to control you. But that's not where freedom is found. That only leads to slavery. Freedom is only found in surrender. It's only found in acknowledging that you are Lord, not us. And so we ask that you would forgive our arrogance, that you would destroy our idols, that you would grant us the grace to trust you every day, to love you above all else, and to lose our lives for your sakes. For we know that there we shall find them. All of this we pray through him who loved us to the end. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.